Hear now the word of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Let's pray. Lord, this is your perfect, infallible, inerrant word. It is sure No one can contradict it. Lord, may we remember that. And may you use your perfect, inerrant, and infallible word to glorify yourself through the preaching of it and to edify us, to encourage us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Here a prediction. This Saturday, in this hot month of June, it will snow atop this church building. The fulfillment of this prophecy is sure. You can take that to the bank. Some of you are looking at me like, I'm out of my mind. Perhaps that's because in Tucson, it doesn't snow in June. 
at least that I know of anyways. <laughs> but perhaps more fundamentally, more basically, you don't believe that prophecy because I'm neither a prophet nor a son of a prophet. And you have no reason to take into consideration any alleged prophecy about the future, be it distant or, or short, that I give. Well, unlike my prophecy, you can take to the bank Peter's prophecy in this text, which is really God's prophecy. And God is promising that he will come. And it is a sure prophecy. But before we look at this prophecy, this prediction, this word of God here through Peter, let us see where we've been in Second Peter. Some of you have been here since last summer. It was then that I began a series in Second Peter. <laughs> Some of you were not here. The last time I was here was in January, so I thought, let's just go, let's go through Second Peter these times that I, I'm here. So for uh, those who haven't been here, and for those who were but have forgotten, let's see what Second Peter, wh- where it is, you know, where we are in the context of Second Peter. Well, this is obviously Peter's second letter that he wrote. He wrote these to people in Pontus. Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia. And he's writing to elect exiles. He's writing to people who have been spread abroad, and they're under great persecution. Persecution from their own Jewish people, Jewish people that haven't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and are persecuting these Christians that have, and persecution from the pagan nations around Peter himself is under great persecution as well. In fact, he will will die months, maybe a year or two, after he has written this letter. I thought it was. Hello? I moved it. I'm not sure. Thank you. So he is under persecution, and he will die at the hand of Nero, the emperor. And he recognizes this. In fact, he says in the first chapter that the putting off of his body is soon. And so this is a very urgent reminder. He wants his people to know what's really on his heart. Because he knows that he's going to be gone. And so he says that any time after my death... You can recall these things. So here is the word of God. And so he picks up a lot of issues. He, takes, he tackles our identity. And he calls us to holiness. He tells us that we should be assured that the Lord will deliver the righteous. That the unrighteous will be judged. That the day of the Lord will come. He spends a whole chapter, chapter 2, on the proper place of prophecy, and he warns us of false teachers, that there will be wolves in sheep's clothing, in fact, that they are eating the Lord's Supper with Peter's audience. So in the first message last summer, we saw that we were told to be who we are. 
that we are elect exiles. We are equally righteous. We are partakers of the divine nature. We have escaped worldly corruption. We are equipped with God's precious and very great promises. And we are equipped with everything we need for life and godliness. And so it was on that basis that Peter then urges us to make our calling and election sure. It tells us that we do that by supplementing our faith with knowledge and virtue, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And then in the last part of chapter 1, we were given the foundation of God's Word. One way of being set apart, being holy, sanctified from the world unto God, is to take God at His Word, to receive God's Word as it truly is, and not to look for other supposed revelations from God. And we saw that even, this was remarkable, but even the, or God's Word, is more sure than even the true and awesome experience that Peter had of Jesus when Jesus was transfigured. And then in January, we looked at all of chapter 2, and we were warned about false teachers. We looked at what they were and what they did, that they're greedy, they're sensual, that you're trying to lead astray the unsteady, the weak, and that they are eating the Lord's Supper with Peter's audience. And so he tells us to be warned, look out for them, but also to be assured that just like the Lord rescued Lot and Noah, so too he will rescue the righteous. And just like those in Noah's day were judged, just like those in Sodom and Gomorrah were judged, so too will be all those false teachers in Peter's day. And we can safely say, in our day as well. Now we're in 2 Peter chapter 3. And Peter begins by telling us to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord Jesus to the apostles. He had just spent a whole chapter talking about these false prophets, these false teachers. And so he's drawing this contrast. Don't be like them. And don't listen to those false teachers. But rather, listen to the holy prophets and the apostles. Listen to the word of God. And it was all the way back in the Old Testament prophesied that there would be false teachers. You even have Deuteronomy 13 and 18 that talk about what to do with a false prophet. And it's no different in Jesus' day. He told us that we would certainly have wolves in sheep's clothing amongst us. And the apostles pick up on Jesus' message, and you see this in Paul and in Jude and John and and other New Testament writings. We are to watch out. We cannot just be twiddling our thumbs thinking that there's no false teaching around us, that there will be no one seeking to deceive us. They're here. And that's the message of these holy prophets and apostles. So verse 3, he says, knowing this, first of all, that 
scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So before we look at the, the message of the scoffers, we quickly note here what motivates their message. They're following their own sinful desires. They have no desire whatsoever to be held accountable to the truth of God. Their belief is a false one. They don't want to be held accountable to the Creator because he says that their claims, their actions are false, are wrong, are contrary to reality. They don't like that. They don't want to be held accountable for all these darts that they've been shooting at God's people and, more importantly, at God. And they're enslaved. They're slaves of, their, of corruption. They promise many things, as we saw in chapter 2. They promise deliverance. They promise freedom. They promise wealth. They can't deliver on any of those promises because they themselves are enslaved to their own sinful lusts and desires. And that's what motivates this false teaching that we'll look at in just a moment. But it's no different today. The unrepentant are dominated by their desires, their sinful lusts of the flesh. They don't want the truth of God because they hate the truth of God. And when God's truth contradicts their truth, their reality, well, they bristle at that. They reject it. And they even ridicule. How can, how can we be so narrow-minded to think that God cares whom we love and whom we don't? Why would God care about that? Why would God care about our thought life? I mean, the police officers don't put us in prison for what we think. God would. Come on, I can't handle what, I can't control what's in my thoughts. And so people reject this God because they want to do what they want to do and they don't want to be held accountable to anyone. So as long as they just suppress this truth about God in unrighteousness, they think they're going to be a-okay. And so the scoffers say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now when they ask, where is this coming? And this is, of course, in a scoffing way. They're ridiculing Peter and the people to whom Peter is writing because they believe that God's going to come. And these scoffers are saying, that's just stupidity. It's utter foolishness. How could you even think that God is going to come? But it's coming in judgment that they are taking issue with. That's the context. If, if the believer said, God's going to come and everyone's just going to be in heaven, well, they would not scoff at that. Yeah, of course, I like heaven. I want to I be where there's no fire. No, they're scoffing, they're ridiculing this idea that God's going to come and judge them for their own sins. They reject it. They see no reason to believe that God is being truthful. And the reasoning is this. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything's been 
since it was. Everything now is how it's been. There's no change. You know, the sun's going to rise, and it's going to set. It's going to rise, it's going to set. You have day after day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium, and there's been no judgment. When is he going to come? He's not going to come. You guys need to stop thinking this way. It's foolishness. Get on with your lives. Stop hoping in in what doesn't give you any truth. It's not going to happen. He's not coming back. We might be tempted to think this way at times. It seems like every generation of believers considers that that is a generation when Jesus will come back. And certainly we hope it is. It would be great to have Jesus come back now. But when you look at all history, he hasn't come back. He said he would. It's been thousands of years. And so we might be tempted to, to accept the scoffer's argument. But Peter has a message, and in this message, he is going to dismantle the scoffer's argument and that temptation that even we may have, that God is not coming back. And so in this message, it's, it's really twofold. He's going to first focus on refuting the scoffers, see how they're wrong, where their argument is faulty, but then also he's going to give us hope. So in verses 5... He said, verses 5 through 7, this is in response to the scoffer's argument, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he begins this refutation of their argument by noting that these scoffers have deliberately overlooked a vital piece of evidence. Since they want their position to be true, since they have no desire to be held accountable to a God who would come and judge them, they conveniently overlook this important piece of evidence. They are just so self-deceived that they have forgotten how God has acted in history. They want it so badly to be true that he's not going to come back. They have forgotten what God has spoken in his word. Believe it or not, the scoffers are actually wrong in their claim that things have continued unabated since creation. And Peter gives two pieces of evidence. First, he says in verse 5 that God intervened in history, or rather he began history, when he created the world. And he did so by his very voice. In Psalm 33, verses 6 and 7, we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. God doesn't use pre-existing material 
to create. It's not like energy is eternal or matter is eternal or whatever worldview would have it. There wasn't something that was eternal apart from God. It's not like he's just fashioning things out of stuff that was already there that's co-eternal. No, he creates with his very voice. He says, let there be. Let there be light. But he creates water. And I'm not sure how this works. I wasn't there. But he uses that water to, and his word to create the universe. And then he stores the water above and below. Peter says, you got to remember, God has acted in history. He's used water to create this world. And the second and most, well, I guess the, the best reason to reject the scoffer's idea, according to Peter, is the flood. He says, do you remember Noah? Remember what happened in Noah's day? How could you have, how could you have forgotten that the very waters God used to create the world, he then used to judge the unrighteous. He came in judgment. How could you have forgotten that? Well, it's again because they deliberately overlook this evidence. But it's right there in the Word of God, the very beginning. And these scoffers are, are Jewish. That's why they refer to these fathers. They just reject this idea of God coming again. But clearly, God has judged the unrighteous in the days of Noah. This is a very scary event. It's like a month ago, we were at Walmart getting some, I don't know, food or something, baby clothing. We're, we're in the baby aisle, and at the end of this baby aisle, there were all these CDs. So I just took a little gander. What's going on with these CDs? Oh, inspirational songs. Oh, and what's on the cover of this CD of inspirational songs? Well, of course, it's going to be Noah and his ark and all those smiling animals. They're all having a good time. And I showed my wife and I said, this, this, this isn't inspiring. This is terrifying. The story of Noah's ark. Flood judgment is just, it should, it's horrifying that everybody except for eight people died. They were judged. That's not inspiring. I don't feel inspired. I feel like this is a, a God who is an all-consuming fire and we must reverence him and, and accept his provision for safety and grace. And so judgment will come upon the wicked. These scoffers, just like it did in Noah's day, they scoffed at Noah. No, you're just an idiot that you would think that God's going to come, that this whole world's going to be filled with water. And they paid a horrible price as they were dying, wanting Noah to open up the ark. They scoffed. They were judged. It's the same thing for the scoffers in Peter's day. It's the same thing for scoffers in our day. It's going to be awful at that time when God comes again in judgment. Peter says it's going to come quickly and unexpectedly. 
Verse 10 is going to come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Just because a thief hasn't come into your home and robbed you of your goods doesn't mean he won't. You can't trust in that. You can't base your view of the future on what has happened now. That's faulty reasoning, Peter's telling us. And it's going to come unexpectedly. The thieves don't say, hey, if you could be out of your house by you know, 4 a.m., 4 to 5, 5.30, then I'm, you know what, we won't get hurt. I'll just take your stuff and get out of there. They don't do that. It's going to be unexpected. Likewise, the Lord's coming in judgment will be unexpected and will be swift. And at this time, then the heavens, heavenly bodies will be dissolved. It'll happen with a roar. They'll be burned up. And the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This is a, admittedly a tough part of Second Peter. Some of this language is apocalyptic, and it's difficult to, to grasp exactly um, all the details of what's going on. But I don't think it means that God is going to annihilate the earth, that he's going to destroy the earth completely. It's the heavenly bodies that are mentioned here that are burned up and dissolved. And in ancient New Testament and Old Testament and literature outside, but around the same time as the New Testament, in ancient literature, these heavenly bodies or elements are associated with demonic powers and influences. And so all of those are going to be burned up, dissolved, and the earth is going to be exposed. It's going to be laid bare. Nothing is going to avoid the judging eye of God. Everyone is going to be exposed. Everything is going to be exposed. God is going to be peeling away all that stands between him and his creation. And the judged, or the wicked, will be judged. These, and the demons who are influencing sinful man will be judged as well. The earth is going to be stripped of the evil. And so, like he cleansed the the earth with the purifying waters of judgment in Noah's day, so too, Peter says, that the cosmos is going to be cleansed. The whole universe is going to be cleansed. And after the earth is stripped away from its evil, the heavens, the heavenly elements are gone, we will have a new heavens, a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. And so that enters then this area of, of hope. He has just told us that these scoffers are going to be judged. But now he gives us some hope. He says this in verses 8 and 9, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. He says, Beloved, do not overlook this fact. And this is in direct contrast to what the scoffers did. The scoffers in verse 5 deliberately overlooked evidence that God had in fact acted in history and that he had in fact judged the unrighteous. Don't be like the scoffers. 
Look at all the biblical picture. Look at all the evidence in Scripture. God will come back, even if it doesn't seem like it. Because with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. This isn't some weird math like common core that Peter is is now teaching us, that we have to think that after this day, now that's been a thousand years in God's, in God's timing. That's not what he's doing. He is referring back to Psalm 90, verse 4, where we see the eternality of God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that all these thousands of years since creation are but blinks of an eye in eternity. And so we, we shouldn't object the scoffers shouldn't object to God because they're using a different time frame. They're using their human timetable where they think, when they think things should have happened. Peter's saying that's just wrong. You can't think that way. God is not bound to your perspective of when he's going to come back and when he's not. And so we can't judge God and say that he is delaying his coming. But more than that, Peter comforts us and he reveals why God has yet to come. He's saying that he is not willing that any of you, beloved, should perish, but that all of you, his people, should reach repentance. That's why he has not come yet. The fact that these things haven't happened yet, that he hasn't come, is not because God is lazy. It's not because he is unable to deliver on the promises he's made. He's not negligent. He's not apathetic to creation. Quite the opposite, really. He cares. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in patience and long-suffering. And he has decreed that from every tribe, tongue, and nation, there would be people. He has elected people from before the foundation of the world choose a people to himself. People from everywhere. And these people aren't born yet. But they will be. And they will then be drawn irresistibly to himself. Mercy will come to an end. There will come a time when God's patience is no more. But it's not yet. Peter's telling us. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. He will fulfill it. He's faithful to that promise. He said he's going to come back, and he will. But he's waiting. Because he has a bigger plan. As much as you want him to come back right now and end all the sin in your own heart and in the sin of this country and sin from the world, as much as you want that, God God wants to save other people. He wants to bring them into his heavenly throne room. And so in verse 15, Peter tells us to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Count it as salvation. The Lord began his work of redemption in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell, when they sinned, God assured them that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so God works through Noah, and he reassures Noah that there would be 
a people. He would save a people that is eight. And from that people, you would have all the other nations. A people for God. People of righteousness. It's the same thing with Abraham. He tells Abraham that Abraham is going to be a father of many nations. Not just one. And there would be offspring as many as the stars in the universe and the sand on the seashore. Can't count them. That's just too many. And as we see continuing in, in the history of redemption through Moses, he assures Moses that his people, plentiful people that it is, will be a kingdom of priests and that they will be a vital tool in bringing those from every tribe, tongue, and nation into the kingdom of God. Of course, they failed miserably. But this is God's promise, to be faithful, to have a people. And this covenant of grace culminates in this new covenant, when all will know the Lord, and the Lord will not remember the iniquities. Of course, this new covenant was established by the blood of Jesus Christ. I neglected to mention the Davidic covenant. God said he was going to have someone on the throne forever. And that is the son of David, Jesus. And the Lord is not done with his work on earth yet. If he were, you'd know it. But he's still patiently waiting to bring people from the domain of darkness into his marvelous splendor. And praise be to God for his patience. Because without it, we'd either be lost or not born altogether. Can you imagine what you know now? The, the knowledge of the Lord as your Savior and the relationship you have with Him, that you love to express thanksgiving and worship and adoration to your triune God, can you imagine not being able to do that forevermore? Because you either were a pagan or you were never born to begin with. But the Lord is good. He is merciful to us. And he wanted to bring you into his kingdom that he began thousands of years before. So how do we live in light of this message that Peter gives us? That God is going to come back and he is not slow to fulfill his promise. Peter gives us three, three ways that we need to be living. Verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. It tells us, because of the future state of the world, live holy lives. Knowing what can happen in the future, knowing what will happen in the future, sometimes gives us, um, or causes us some change, at least temporarily. This happens around Christmas time. Kiddos around the world, they... They know, think, however you want to incorporate him or not into your Christmas celebration, that Santa Claus is going to come and going to give you guys some gifts. So, oh, Santa Claus is coming. It's November. I probably should shape up. So I'm not going to hit my sister. I'm going to take out the trash. 
I'll listen to my mommy and daddy, eat my vegetables, I'll do, listen to my teachers, I'll do all that stuff, because December 25th, I'm going to get some presents if I do, and I don't want that coal. Likewise, and for students, the teacher says, okay, students, you got to test this Friday, and today is Tuesday or Wednesday. Well, I better be studying if I want to do well on that test. So they change their habits for those few days anyways, hopefully. And then after, you know, December 25th, well, they can come back to hitting their sister, not eating their vegetables. After Friday's test, they can stop studying until the next one. So knowing what's going to happen in the future can help us and shape our behavior, at least temporarily. Of course, the problem with that is that's not real change. It's not heartfelt change. It's just pharisaical change, I guess. And in those instances, there's a fairly clear end in sight. Peter's telling us to act similarly. In light of what's going to happen, in light of God's coming in judgment, kill sin and rest in Christ. But what's different here, and the challenge for us, of course, is that we have no idea when he's coming back. It's not like it's going to be next Friday, December 25th. We don't know when he's coming back. That's harder for us to get on board with this life change. Nevertheless, we are still exhorted to do this. We are still exhorted to submit ourselves to the word of God and to live lives of holiness and godliness. Because this age is ending. And so we're not supposed to conform to the ways of the world. We're not supposed to give in to the scoffer's argumentation. We're not supposed to give in to our own temptations to sin and the world's temptations to sin. We are investing, if we do that, in a world that's failing. This world is slowly but surely fading away. We mustn't invest in an age without a future. But rather, we should live lives of holiness and godliness like the citizens of heaven that we are. And we do this, Peter tells us, all the way in the beginning of this book by adding to our faith knowledge and virtue, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly affection, godliness, and love. The second thing that Peter tells us to do, living in light of this message of God's coming, is to, in verse 12, wait for and hasten the coming day of God. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Another tough portion of Second Peter. But in light of these future changes, we shouldn't rest in the now, but in what is to come and patiently wait for this new heavens and new earth. But what's mysterious and really exciting about verse 12 is that when we do this, we can hasten God's coming. We speed it up. As we live holy lives, we actually speed up the coming day of God. Now this is, of course, from the human perspective. God, from before the foundation of the world, has decreed when he would come again. But the Lord works through means. Just like the Lord works through you 
to preach the gospel, because without the preaching of the gospel, without the hearing of the gospel, no one will be saved, just like he uses you through that. He also uses his church, his bride, to hasten his coming. That as we seek to live holy lives, as we advance the kingdom of God, as we proclaim the gospel to all the nations, as we do those things, and we're being transformed, we are actually hastening God's coming. Again, not sure how all that works out, but it's a fascinating element of, of our role in God's coming back. Finally, in verse 14, we are told to, as we wait, we're told to be diligent, to be found without spot, without blemish, and to be found at peace with everyone. But this spotless life, this blemishless life, is not coming from any desire on our part to make ourselves righteous before God. It's not, let's earn a bunch of Merit. Let's do enough good things. Let's have 51%. Maybe God's good with that. Just, it's not like that at all. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We cannot bear one small piece of fruit apart from being in the vine. But this diligence to be found spotless and blemishless comes from an effort on our part to conform ourselves to the image of the righteous Son of God. This is, this is sanctification. It's being more and more like Jesus. This was Paul's goal. that he, he wants to present the church to Christ spotless. This is Peter's goal. Peter wants us to be at peace with each other. So if there's any infighting amongst you guys, Peter's telling you to cut it out. To see the beauty of grace that Christ has forgiven you. And so as Christ has forgiven you, you too forgive each other. To be at peace because God, your God, and their God is a God of peace. Peter's goal should be ours as well. And that means that we do whatever we need to do, resting, of course, in the grace of God, to be conformed to the image of His Son. This means that you go to Pastor Steve or the elders for counseling, for solid biblical counseling. If you're struggling with issues like anxiety or lust or anger, impatience, cutting, whatever it might be, sensuality, you go to them and, and get the help that you need. Take every effort. Be diligent to do that. Be vulnerable to each other. Be held accountable to each other. Submit to the Word of God. Speak the truth in love to each other. Be a church people that cares for the holiness of the other. Because purity is is going to last in this kingdom that's going to fade. This is then how we live in light of the kingdom of God, in light of His coming. And so even though you cannot take to the bank my prophecy that it will snow atop this building this Saturday, 
you can certainly take to the bank God's promise that he is coming to come back. May we say with John, the end of Revelation, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come.